0: Good morning. Today, we begin a new year in the church. 2023, of course, starts in January, but our calendar, the liturgical calendar, starts with Advent, uh, which is a season that starts today and will go until Christmas Eve. Now, Advent is just a Latin word that means arrival. So the Christian year is structured around the life and the ministry of Jesus, which means the year starts with our anticipation of his coming. Now in view of Christmas, it's obvious that Advent anticipates the arrival of Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem. So during this season, we will reflect on our need for a savior and on the fact that he came, that he became flesh and dwelt among us, as it says in John chapter one. Each week we will light an additional candle in the front of the sanctuary to remember and to welcome the light of the world who shined and who still shines in the darkness. But you might have noticed that today's gospel reading didn't sound very Christmassy. In fact, we don't get readings about baby Jesus until the fourth and final week of Advent this year. And that's because Advent is oriented not only toward the first coming of Jesus, his incarnation, but also, and in fact primarily, Advent is oriented toward the second coming of Jesus. So our readings and reflections over the next month will invite us not only to look back on Jesus' birth, but also to look forward to his return. The penitential tone of this season is an invitation to consider the ways we still need a savior, the ways that we and our world remain in darkness, and to learn to pray in greater sincerity, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But I think it's helpful that we pair these two arrivals, these two advents of Jesus together in our reflections this month, and here's why. Jesus' first advent prepares us to welcome both the gift and the warning of his second advent. Think about it. When Jesus first came into the world, it wasn't because anyone did anything particularly special to earn or deserve it. Jesus simply came. His incarnation, his commitment to become a human being and to live among us was the result of his desire his initiative. In a similar way, when Jesus returns, it will not be the result of our efforts. Jesus isn't waiting for us to create the kingdom, as if we could usher in utopia through education or policy or even evangelism. The return of Christ and the renewal of all things will not be our own making, friends. It will be his making, his gift, This is the very essence of the Gospel. God gives himself to the world in love. It was true when he came through Mary, and it will be true when he comes again on the clouds. But second, and in response to this gift, there's also a warning involved. When he comes, will we be ready to receive him? There's a great irony In the christmas narratives if you think about it because they tell us that when the king of the world finally arrives in the flesh there's not even room for him in a small town motel the gospel of luke tells us that when jesus was born you know these words his mother wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger a feeding trough for animals because there was no room for them in the inn Like Noah's companions in the ark, it's the animals who are the first witnesses of God's salvation, because Jesus' own people weren't ready to receive him. John 1 goes on to put it like this. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So the question for us then becomes, will we receive him? And are our hearts and lives currently in a posture that's ready for him to return? Let me repeat that. Are our hearts and lives currently in a posture that is ready to meet our Lord? This is the challenge of Advent. It's to heed Jesus' warning for us to be ready, as he says in verse 44 of our Gospel reading. Be ready, he says, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now I'd like to point out that Jesus says, be ready. He does not say, be afraid. I think sometimes Christians sort of tiptoe around Jesus' warnings regarding his second coming because they can feel a little bit ominous. They almost feel as if he's questioning our salvation or at least threatening us not to get caught with our hand in the proverbial cookie jar, which is the way I talk to my sons. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? And this might be at least partially due to the fact that in the Protestant tradition, we tend to emphasize other biblical passages, the ones about salvation by grace through faith, which, of course, are equally true and relevant to our lives. The gospel, as I've already said, is about God's gift, his free gift of himself to anyone who calls on his name. So how does that fit with the warning to be ready when he comes? This is the question Advent compels us to ask. So let's go ahead and ask it. If you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was going to come back tonight at 8 p.m. sharp, what would you do between now and then? In all seriousness, how would you spend your last day getting ready to meet your Lord? That's your journal prompt for the month. And it will be mine. Because the point is, he actually could come tonight. Nobody knows the time or the hour of his return. Jesus says so himself in verse 36. So if we are his, if we love him and we long to see his appearing, then the expectation is that our lives now will reflect that. It's a little bit like those stories you sometimes see on the internet of a military spouse who's returning after a long deployment, uh, or a refugee being reunited with his family after a long separation. I'm a sucker for these stories. I go looking for them online because I like to cry. I'm one of those weird people. And just recently, I heard about a Tanzanian woman who came to the U.S. while she was pregnant with her first child. She'd gotten clearance to come before her husband, so he sent her ahead, even though that meant they might not be together for the birth of their child. Four years later, this woman stood in the Chicago airport waiting for her husband to deboard a flight. Her son was now three years old and was about to meet his father for the first time. He stood there in his little coat and his cap, because you know it's cold in Chicago, and he had a sign that said, family together forever. His mother held a bouquet of flowers, a little bit like a bride waiting to meet her bridegroom. And she was radiant, she was expectant, and yeah, probably a little bit nervous to see her husband after all this time. And when she saw him, she wept. I told you I'm a sucker. And in an interview, because this was on the news, that's how I found it, uh, one of the social workers said that the woman originally came to the U.S. with no idea how long the separation would be. She thought, at least she hoped, that originally her husband would be there in time for the birth of their child. And as the years went by, it probably got harder and harder for this couple to stay alive to their hope of reunification. And I think it would have been tempting for them to sort of get used to the separation and just sort of move on from each other. You know, maybe not consciously or overtly, but more out of habit. And I think it's similar for the church. As our separation from Christ is prolonged, we may not consciously lose heart, but we just get distracted. Our love can easily grow cold, our urgency decreases, and we kind of forget about the fact that we are waiting for our bridegroom to return, that he is actually coming and that it matters, that it will make all the difference. So Advent isn't just for us as individual Christians, although our personal reflection, our personal readiness is important. Advent is for God's people, his bride, It invites us to collectively ask, what are we doing here? Are we living as citizens as the kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated? Or are we just playing church? Are we just here for the pretty music? Brothers and sisters, are we praying for this world? Or are we just living in it? Advent asks us, are we awake to the story? Because it's our story It's the one that has been entrusted to us to live and to proclaim as the true story of the world, even if it sounds like a fairy tale to the people around us. That's why I'm personally comforted and also challenged by the example of Noah from our gospel reading. He was charged to build a boat in the middle of the desert, surrounded by people who had never even heard of rain, and he was taunted for doing it. And there were probably times he even doubted himself. You know, probably times he asked, Is all this worth it? Or am I just making a fool of myself? Sometimes I wonder that. Sometimes when I say the story out loud that Christians believe God became a human being, was born of a virgin, rose from the dead, and will return bodily to restore the earth forever, I think, Yeah, that sounds pretty crazy. It does. Our hope that the dead will be raised and returned to us sounds crazy. Our sexual ethics sound crazy. Our expectation that justice will come, that the powerful will be dethroned, and the meek will inherit the earth, it all sounds crazy. Just like Noah's ark sounded crazy until the flood came. Then he understood what it was all about. But until it came, Noah had to live in obedience to something he couldn't fully understand or control. He had to live in the tension of a story that wasn't over yet. He had to get ready for something, even though he wasn't sure exactly what he was getting ready for. This is how the church is called to live as well. We are called to live in anticipation of Christ's return, even when it is costly or confusing. We are called to live as citizens of a kingdom that hasn't fully broken into this world, even when its ethics seem illogical. We are called to stay alive to hope, even and especially in the moments when it seems like hope is lost. And that's not just because it's wishful thinking. It's because we believe the story isn't over yet, that he is coming and he will make good on his promises. So let's turn to the question of how. How do we do this? What does it look like to get ready for Jesus' return? I'll offer you two ways, two practices for you to contemplate during this Advent season, and they're drawn from our scripture readings. Wake up and walk in the light. First, wake up. Actually, two of our readings challenge us to do this. So the first is verse 42 of the Gospel. Jesus says, stay awake in anticipation of his coming. And then in verse 11 of our Romans passage, Paul says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. What does this mean? Our readings play on the metaphors of light and darkness to help us understand the contrasts of our life in this present age. We live in a world that is darkened by sin and death, but we also live in the light of Christ who has come and is coming. Now this is a tension that's hard to live with, that's hard to stay awake in the middle of the night. And so even as Christians, we tend to err on one side or the other. On the one side, for example, we can focus so much on the light, on Christ's victory over darkness and the joy and life he's won for the world, that we tend to deny any ongoing presence of evil or pain or sorrow in our lives. This is what theologians sometimes call an overrealized eschatology, which is just a very long, fancy way of saying that everything Jesus has in store for us is already here. So if you're a Christian, you should never get sick or never struggle with sin or never expect anything bad to happen to you because Christ has already defeated all those things, right? It's a kind of triumphalism that says if you're sad, if you're grieving, if you're struggling, just stop it. And if you've lived under this kind of teaching for real, you know how debilitating it can be. Instead, we need to wake up to the fact that yes, the light has come, but until he comes again, the shadow of death still haunts us. This is why Advent begins in the dark. It's why our opening hymn was in a minor key to remind us that as we wait for Jesus' return, even our rejoicing includes overtones of lament. Hear the words again of our song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here, until the Son of God appear. This is still our song. And this is why Advent is such a gift, because it gives us permission to name that. Christian hope does not imply denial of what is still broken and incomplete. In fact, our ability to be prophetic in this world requires that we take fearless inventory of the darkness. Christian hope allows us to face those things without fear or shame and say, this is why we so desperately need Jesus to come. I think Advent is especially a gift to us during the holidays because in this stretch of weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas, there's so much cultural pressure to be happy to have a holly jolly Christmas, right? At least that's what they're singing out there. But in here, you don't have to pretend everything is okay when it's not. In here, you are invited to wake up to your longing for things to be different. Wake up to your need, to our need, for the only one who can finally and fully fix what is broken in our world. Now maybe you hear that and you think, yeah, no thanks, I don't want to wake up to all that. That sounds like a lot of hard work that will just make me feel bad. And you're right, there's a reason we don't do this very well because it requires us to get in touch with our grief and our disappointment and even our shame about the way things currently are. And so the other temptation we face, even in the church, is just to stay asleep. You may not be prone to triumphalism but you might be really good at apathy. This is when we slip into a basic acceptance of the way things are. Very subtly and usually subconsciously, we just make peace with the darkness and go to sleep. For example, you know your marriage isn't great, but it's easier to just stay busy with your hobbies than it is to try to work on your relationship. Your prayer life is non-existent, but you don't really care enough to do anything about it. You're lonely, but binging Netflix night after night is much more comfortable than trying to get to know anybody. Do you relate to that on any level? If so, Advent is for you. And again, this is not just a private, individual problem. Sometimes the church as a whole can be guilty of this rather than cultivating the holy discontentment to which we are called, sometimes the church just goes with the flow of the world and we have willingly ignored the darkness in our midst. In seasons of the church's life, we have fallen asleep to racism and misogyny. We've fallen asleep to materialism and greed. We have fallen asleep to our addiction to power and to sex and to comfort we've fallen asleep to our own hypocrisy. Sometimes it feels easier to just shut our eyes to our problems than to try to face them. It's understandable, but hear again the words of the Apostle Paul. The time has come for you to wake from sleep. Not so that you can be ashamed, not so that you can live in despair over how bad things are, but so that you can learn to walk in the light that we know is coming. Brothers and sisters, wake up and walk in the light. Look at verse 12 of our Romans passage. Paul goes on to say, Wake up, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. God's kingdom hasn't fully arrived yet. But we can see its light on the horizon. The day is dawning. So we don't need to be afraid to face the darkness that remains because we know it's just a passing thing. We don't need to suppress our grief or our longing for a better world because that world is coming. We don't even need to hide from our own sin because the light that exposes us is the light that sets us free. I'd like to close with a quote by Wendell Berry that articulates something about this light that is dawning. It captures the tension, I think, between the warning and the gift that we are called to embrace with regard to Jesus' return. And for me, it also captures the hope. Now, he's writing about those who've already died, but since we don't know the hour of our Lord's appearing, I think this can apply to us at any stage of the journey. He writes, I imagine the dead waking, dazed, into a shadowless light in which they know themselves all together for the first time. It is a light that is merciless until they can accept its mercy. By it they are at once condemned and redeemed. It is hell until it is heaven. Seeing themselves in that light, if they are willing, they see how far they have failed the only justice of loving one another. And yet, in suffering that light's awful clarity, in seeing themselves within it, they see its forgiveness and its beauty and are consoled. In that light, they are loved completely, even as they have been, and so are changed into what they could not have been, but what, if they could have imagined it, they would have wished to be. It is this shadowless light that will transform us into the people we would wish to be if we even knew how to imagine it. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, he imagines it. He says Christ's light will transform us into the people who will one day beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. And though this transformation won't be complete until we see him, this transformation has already begun. The invitation of Advent is to wake up to it, to welcome it, and to walk in it. In all the ways that are particular to you and to us in this moment, hear the words of the prophet Isaiah again. O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.